Welcome back to Psychic Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann, and I say it every week. I just thought that maybe my family would listen to this. I never thought that I had this many episodes or that I would be doing this for this long, but here we are again, and we have new listeners from new countries, the Netherlands, um, we have uh, Mexico hanging in there, New Zealand is hanging in there, Dutchland is back, Ghana, out of nowhere, India is hanging in there, hello to the Maldives, whether you're just there on vacation or you are a resident, we're happy to have you, so thank you so much for the support, we greatly appreciate it, um, as always, I hope you do come back, uh, stop by the Patreon, you can request a crime, so, um, without further ado, this week we're going to be looking into Robert Durst. Um, if you are from the United States or Canada, you probably are very, very, very um, aware of this crime, familiar with it. Robert Durst is a very wealthy man. Um, he is the heir to real estate fortune. So this may be something that you are familiar with. Now, uh, so let's begin. Early parental loss affects approximately 5% of the population, according to a study done by Ellis, Dorwick, and Lloyd Williams. Because of the risks of complicated bereavement, negative effects on attachment, including the ability to, to form and maintain healthy relationships, and the disruption of the family system, the death of a parent in early childhood may adversely affect adult development. Studies of adults with early parental loss show that they are more likely to experience depression, anxiety, and substance use disorders, as well as develop maladaptive coping strategies that may include, include increased levels of self-blame, self-medication, and emotional eating. Now, in contrast, children raised in intact homes do better on average as adults. They are more likely to do well socially and financially, they enjoy a higher quality of life, they have better overall health, and they have fewer mental health issues. We would expect that early parental loss could be associated with differences in adult relationships, but there isn't a lot of research. According to Huag and colleagues in a 2018 study, findings have been inconsistent. Existing smaller studies suggest that those with early parental loss are less likely to even get married, especially women, while others found that women who experience early parental loss tend to marry earlier. It's also unclear whether the gender of the deceased parent makes any difference, though the assumption has been that maternal loss tends to be worse, whether at a younger age the time of loss leads to poor outcomes. Do adults who lose parents as children have shorter relationships or higher levels of divorce? Does the cause of death make a difference? Is parental suicide associated with more difficulty in relationships once you become an adult? Etc. Etc. To definitively address these type of questions, Ho and colleagues looked at sample data from several Danish population databases, conducting statistical analyses to look for significant patterns between early parental loss and adult relationships. They used data on uh, 1,525,173 people in for the years of 1970 to 1995, and they cross-referenced it with causes of parental death 
and relationship duration and outcomes from the household and family register of population. They included information about household income, education, and psychiatric illnesses from other databases. In terms of basic demographics, they found that about 4.5% of people had experienced early parental loss. 70% were due to the death of a father and 12% were from suicide. About half lost parents in teenage years and half lost them earlier. Parental loss was way more likely in families with psychiatric problems and in families with lower income and education levels. That actually makes sense. Lower income, less likely to have insurance. Um, psychiatric problems are less likely to be treated if you have a lower income. And if you have a lower education level, you're also less likely to catch health problems or um, be aware of psychiatric problems. Of the 1.5 million people in the study, Nearly 430,000 men and 440,000 women had started relationships, including over 21,000 men and almost 20,000 women who had experienced the death of a parent before they were 18. They found no difference in the rate of long-term relationships, whether they were married or living together among men, but women were 9% more likely to have long-term relationships. Both men and women were more likely to have been in relationships if the parental death was from suicide, but the sex of the parent made absolutely no difference. Of those who started a relationship during the period studied, they looked at data from nearly 209,000 men and 218,000 women whose relationships ended in separation, whether it was divorce or the end of a long-term relationship with nearly 11,000 men and 12,000 women who had experienced early parental loss. Both men and women had higher rates of ending their long-term relationships compared to non-bereaved people, and among the bereaved people, men were far more likely to have relationships end than women. On average, relationships for people without early parental loss were two years longer, averaging six years versus four with modestly higher rates of separation for bereaved men at 13% than women at 9%. Relationships were more likely to end earlier when parental loss was from suicide, but there were no real differences in relationship duration, depending upon whether it was a father or mother who the child lost. Bereaved women were more likely to begin relationships at a very young age, and people with early parental loss from suicide also started their relationships far younger. But those relationships also did not last as long as relationships started later in life. Surprisingly, there are no real differences in patterns uh, as long as far as uh, loss versus maternal or paternal as far as relationship duration. Perhaps we expect this because of gender bias. Like we figure that if a mother dies, the duration will be shorter because mother has a bigger impact on you. Uh, that's something that we see in movies a lot, like the death of a mother has a greater impact, AKA Batman and uh, Superman's moment of bonding over the name of Martha, you know, that kind of thing that gets reinforced in movies a lot. That's the gender bias of the death of a mother having a greater impact over the death of a father. But it also may be that because men are more likely to remarry, there is a greater family support after maternal death than paternal death. In addition, although they do not report on paternal child gender interactions 
It may be that maternal and paternal loss may have different effects on boys than they do on girls. It's surprising that they found no difference in relationship outcomes for people who experience loss um, far, far earlier in childhood. We're talking about like uh, toddler age, as one might expect. Also surprising and reassuring is that the overall impact of early parental loss on adult relationships was relatively low considering the magnitude of parental loss. While adults who experience early parental loss have high rates of health and emotional issues, in general, they are able to find and maintain adult relationships. Though they are somewhat less stable, suggesting a level of attachment insecurity, the low level of relationship difficulties tells a story of resilience in the face of loss for the majority, not all, the majority. So now remember, those percentages of people who have difficulty maintaining relationships, who have short relationships, those were low. Those were in the teens, um, numbers that were under 10, we we're looking at like seven to 15%. So those people who have problems with instability, those people who can't maintain relationships are low, but you still have high rates of mental health issues. You still have high rates of substance use disorder in people who have early childhood uh, parental deaths. Future research could focus on the quality of relationships and the attachment style and correlate relationship outcomes with mental and physical health more as a function of the quality of grieving and cultural and family coping. In some culture, when um, a parent passes away, there is a set amount of mourning. There's like a set mourning period and there's a way to go about it so that you can deal with it and cope with the grief um, in, in a very open manner and, and it just, uh, it's a coping skill. It's a, it's a culturally ingrained coping skill to allow people grieving time. Not, we definitely do not have that here in the United States. Um, as a substance abuse clinician, you know, I have grown adults that I treat that are still dealing with the death of a parent from childhood. Um, they self-medicate, um, they blame which you know you may feel is irrational but to them it clearly is not so you know that i have a great deal of respect for cultures that have you know these i would i don't necessarily want to call them rituals because they're not rituals in every culture but they they have these things built into their culture to help people through the grieving process and to cope and do it in an open way and to share their grief with other people um, it, it truly does help people deal with things in a healthy, well-adjusted manner. Um, we would expect people with unresolved, complicated grief to have more problems in their adulthood and identifying what those issues are and who they are more likely to affect could become valuable in getting help to the people who need it the most. Uh, now, uh, a quick word from our sponsor. The Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted better gut health. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. It doesn't taste chalky or sour like superfood powders or probiotics normally do. It just has this really kind of mild tropical taste that I really, really love. So what is it? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, 
whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens. Some of you know I have Hashimoto's and it causes digestive problems for me. So I've tried a lot of different probiotics and this is one of the best tasting ones I've ever tried. I just drink it in the morning with breakfast and tons of people take different kinds of multivitamins and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. So I figured, hey, why not just drink it? For every purchase, they donate to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in needs, including No Kid Hungry here in the US. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com emerging. Again, that's it. athleticgreens.com emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Eldest of four children, Robert Durst was born in Manhattan on April 12, 1943. He grew up in Scarsdale, New York, which is in upstate New York. He was the son of real estate magnate Seymour Durst and his wife Bernice. He was Jewish and his siblings were Douglas, Tommy, and Wendy. Durst's paternal grandfather Joseph was a tailor and he immigrated from Austria, Hungary in 1902. Eventually, he became a successful real estate manager and developer and founded the Durst Organization in 1927. When Robert was seven, his mother committed suicide by jumping from the roof of the family's Scarsdale home. He later claimed that moments before her death, his father walked him to a window from which he could see her standing on the roof. In a March 2015 New York Times interview though, his brother Douglas denied that Robert had witnessed her death. As children, Robert and Douglas underwent counseling for their sibling rivalry. A 1953 psychiatrist report on a then 10-year-old Robert mentioned personality decompensation and possibly even schizophrenia. That is a super complicated diagnosis for 1953 psychiatry um, and personality decompensation to give to a 10-year-old is basically saying that uh, you, you, you think that a 10-year-old's entire sense of self is like crumbling and now we don't diagnose anybody that young with any type of personality disorders or um something like schizophrenia like early onset schizophrenia would come in in your 20s maybe at best your late teens maybe maybe 16 17 so to say that a 10 year old has possibly has schizophrenia is really 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 ridiculous durst attended scarsdale high school where his classmates described him as a loner he earned a bachelor's degree in economics in 1965 from lehigh university where he was a member of the varsity lacrosse team and the business manager of the student newspaper, the brown and white. I love how newspapers have these weird names like the crimson, the gray and gold. Can't you just give it a real name like a normal newspaper? The Herald, the Banner, like stop naming it after colors, it's a newspaper. 
Durst enrolled in a doctoral program at the University of California, Los Angeles, or UCLA, where he met Susan Berman, but he eventually withdrew from school and returned to New York in 1969. Durst had no interest in working for his father at the Durst organization. He instead preferred to open a small health food store, all good things, in Vermont in the early 1970s. Durst closed All Good Things in 1973 when his father convinced him to return to New York and to his business. Due to Robert Durst's inappropriate conduct, however, his father broke tradition and appointed his brother Douglas to take over the company much later in 1992. Durst, who felt that he was entitled to inherit the company despite his disdain and lack of interest in it, accused and blamed his brother Douglas for stealing what he felt he was owed, which caused a rift between the two and the rest of the family. Robert did eventually sue for his share of the fortune and was bought out of the family trust for $65 million in 2006. Uh, I'd like to be bought out of my family trust for $50,000. There is no family trust. (laughs) In the fall of 1971, Durst met a dental hygienist by the name of Kathleen McCormick. After two dates, he invited McCormick to share his home in Vermont, where he had opened All Good Things. She moved there on January 1972. However, Durst's father had convinced the two to come back. Now, she genuinely loved that store. It was a passion project for her. She was really, really, really um, into it, like... She had introduced certain products to it that that weren't originally there. Uh, she was very invested in it, and she didn't want to leave. She absolutely did not want to go back to New York. Uh, she was thoroughly against it. So um, eventually, when they went back, she was not happy, and she felt out of place. So when the couple returned to Manhattan, they married in 1973, which was Durst's 30th birthday. Now, shortly after this is when she disappeared. McCormick was a student in her fourth and final year at the Albert Einstein School of Medicine in the Bronx. She was studying to be a pediatrician and she only had a few months left before she would have earned her medical degree. She was last seen by someone other than Durst on January 31st, 1982, when she appeared unexpectedly at a dinner party thrown by her friend Gilberte Najimi in Newtown, Connecticut. Najimi noticed that McCormick was upset and was wearing red sweatpants, which he found odd because she never could dress casually when she went out in public. She was always put together. McCormick later left for her home in South Salem, New York after a phone call from her husband. Although the couple were known to have argued and fought that evening, Durst maintained that he placed his wife on a commuter train to New York at Catania Station and went and had a drink with a neighbor. He spoke to his wife at their Manhattan apartment by phone later that evening. Durst later admitted that he just went home and went to bed. After McCormick left Najimi's house, the two women were supposed to meet at a pub called the Lionsgate in Manhattan. When she failed to appear, Najimi became concerned and repeatedly called the police 
for several days. This is how little people took missing persons back in the 80s. Like that that's this is where that very weird trope about you must be missing for 48 hours before we can do anything. That's actually not true. They can start looking for you as soon as somebody reports you missing. Um, but a lot of times they just didn't take the missing person seriously. And still to this day, if you are an adult and you go missing in the United States, a lot of times the police don't even try and look for you. I actually have a friend who is currently missing. And I remember after like the one year mark hit, calling the officer who or the detective who had been assigned her case and basically was just told, you know, she's a grown adult and she probably just went off. And I'm like, I know for a fact that's not what happened. She's not that kind of person. She tells people where she's going. She gives us, you know, a list of where she's gonna be. She checks in, you know, and they're like, well, her car was last seen and it was some crazy place that she would never go. It was like all the way on the other side of the country. Like it was like her car was abandoned. It was very clear that this was a setup. Like her car was planted someplace to make it look like she left the country and she didn't have a passport. How the hell was she supposed to get out of the country? Like they just didn't want to talk about these questions. They were just like, clearly she just left. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. You know, she clearly did not just leave the country with no passport. You know, you're, but they didn't want to talk about it because in their mind, she's a grown adult and grown adults do this. Grown adults just leave and decide they don't like life anymore. And that's very much what happens a lot in the United States. And that's what happened here. For several days, they're telling the police this person is not, is gone. We can't find her. She's missing. And they're pretty much just ignoring them. And that's happened a lot in the 80s. That's where that trope of you must be missing for 48 hours before you can do anything. That's why a lot of murders, um, the murderers get a head start because people believe you must be missing for 48 hours before they can file a missing person. It's not true. Soon as you feel someone is missing, you can file the missing persons. Doesn't mean the police are gonna listen to you or even do anything, but you should file it immediately so that at least they have an accurate timeline of when the person went missing. So her husband, however, on the other hand, he waited and did not even um, report her missing until the end of the week. So later in the week, both a doorman and the building superintendent at the couple's apartment on Riverside Drive claimed to have seen her there on February 1st the day after she was last indisputably seen, meaning someone other than her husband saw her. But the doorman also said he had only seen her from behind and from a block away and could not be certain it was her. A private investigator hired by Durst's own criminal lawyer later reported that the doorman said he had not seen her arrive at all and may not have even been working on the night that she disappeared. Only three weeks after Durst reported McCormick missing, the superintendent at the Riverside Drive apartment found her possessions in the trash compactor. So only three weeks after he reported his wife missing, he threw all of her belongings out. That's not suspicious at all. McCormick had been treated at Bronx Hospital for facial bruises three weeks before she was reported missing. She told a friend that Durst had beat her but chose not to press charges over the incident. 
McCormick asked Dorst for a $250,000 divorce settlement, which that's given what his family is worth. That's like a very low, that's a very quick, like, get me out of this divorce. Just, you know, buy me out, let me out of this type of settlement. Instead, Durst canceled his wife's credit card, removed her name from their bank account, and refused to pay her med school tuition. When McCormick disappeared, Durst had already been dating a Prudence Pharaoh for three years and living in a separate apartment. Durst initially offered a reward of $100,000 for his wife's return. Then he reduced the reward to 15,000. One of McCormick's friends and her sister found out she had been reported missing. They then broke into her cottage, hoping to find her. Instead, they found it had been ransacked. McCormick's mail had been left unopened and her belongings were all in the trash. Can you imagine finding out um, that your sister was missing after the fact because you've heard about the reward that's how you find out that your sister is missing because you hear about the reward after the disappearance the new york city police department said durst had claimed to have spoken to her when she called him at the apartment he claimed that the last time he had seen her was at the station when he dropped her off he said she was planning to board a 915 train to come back to manhattan he also claimed that on February 4th, the supervisor at her medical school called him and said she called in sick. I'm sorry. <laughs> when you go to med school, when you go to college, when you go to law school, when you go to any type of school, <laughs> the director of like, there's no supervisor in a med school. Like it's your, whether it's your course teacher, your instructor of your particular course, the head of your like department, if you're doing a residency, it's the person that you're doing the residency with, but they don't call. They don't call your husband. They don't call your mom to check on you. You just don't show up and they fail you. Like they don't call, you're a grown adult. You don't show up, you don't show up. That's just how it works. Um, on February 1st, she had been absent for a whole week from class. If it was indeed McCormick who had made the call, it is uncertain. The day after Durst received the call from the medical school, that was when he reported her missing. The police found all of these stories that he told them to be full of contradictions. Eight years after McCormick had disappeared, Durst divorced her and claimed spousal abandonment. Um, in 2016, McCormick's family asked to have her declared legally dead, a request that was granted um, her mother attempted to sue Durst for $100 million, alleging that he killed her and deprived them of the right to bury her. So, now, not long after the disappearance, um, in 1990, Durst sold the South Salem Cottage, um, and that was around the time of the divorce. He moved to an East Side apartment, um with the woman he had been dating, but then he left after nine months because he felt that the neighborhood was too stuffy for him. Now, 1994, Durst is, um, is when he gets into all of the drama with his family because he can't have the company, and that is when he gets bought out. So 
Now remember this, he has $65 million. He is $65 million. One of the things that caused the rift between the rest of his family, not just his brother, was his erratic behavior. He had been caught peeing in his uncle's trash can. So the family was like, we're done with you. We'll just buy you out. They give him $65 million. And he starts traveling the country, basically living a kind of vagabond hobo life, kind of going from place to place, single room occupancies, boarding houses. For a little bit, he maintained an apartment in New York, but here or there, he really didn't stay in contact with the woman he was dating. The next time he does contact a woman by the name of Susan Berman, he dated her for a short period before his wife. Um, and she was short on cash um, in 2000. He had been in contact um, writing her. And in 2000, she contacts him. She's short on cash. She's living in Los Angeles. And she writes him a letter. And months later, he sends her two checks worth $25,000 each. So he sends her $50,000. Now, around this time, the New York City police reach out to her because they've decided to look back into his wife's death. Now, later that year in 2000, Durst married the woman that he had been dating, Ms. Chartran, in a secret ceremony. Uh, it was a rabbi who had been hired out of a phone book and the rabbi told the Daily News that he was very taciturn, like he didn't really have any affect on his face. He didn't smile. He really didn't seem like he was enthused to be there. Now, around that same time, Susan Berman, his old friend, is found dead in her Los Angeles home. She's found dead of a gunshot wound to her head. There are no signs of forced entry. All of her valuables are still there. And the main evidence is a letter addressed to the Beverly Hills Police, in which Beverly is spelled wrong. It informs them that there is a cadaver in her home. Now, Kathy Durst's friends suspect that she was murdered to keep her from telling the police what she knew about Kathy's disappearance, which is that she gave a false alibi for Durst during the murder. Berman's own circle maintains that her mob-like code of loyalty would have prevented her from even considering testifying because she is the daughter of a former mob boss. The LAPD considers Durst a possible suspect but focuses on her manager. Now in 2001, to escape media attention, Durst moves to Galveston, Texas where he poses as a mute woman named Dorothy Sinner. The name comes from a former high school classmate. He lives in a boarding house where he has an elderly neighbor by the name of Morris Black that he strikes up a friendship with. Durst continues to live in Galveston and later that year on September 28th, he comes home to find Morris Black in his apartment watching TV. Although they were friends, Durst claims that that day, Morris pointed a gun at him. He then stated that in fear of his life, he struggled with him, and by accident, Morris was fatally shot. Worried that he was going to be accused of murder again, Durst dismembered the body, 
wrap the pieces in garbage bags and toss them in the Galveston Bay. Obviously, he was later arrested, but then while out on bail, he fled to Pennsylvania. After a six-week manhunt, Durst is finally arrested in Pennsylvania. After he's caught shoplifting a sandwich, even though he has $500 in cash on him, his car has two guns in it, Morris Black's driver's license, and $37,000 in cash. He is $37,500 in cash. And remember, the man inherited $65 million, which means he still has roughly $64 million. Because remember, he's living a very Spartan life in single room occupancy type of boarding houses where the rent is far less than a regular apartment, you know, that us normal people live. And he's shoplifting food. So he still has $64 million. He's got $500 in cash on his pocket, $37,000 in his car, and he's still shoplifting food. In 2003, Durst went on trial for the murder of Berman, or for the murder of Morris Black, excuse me, but was acquitted uh, after he claimed self-defense. However, he later pled guilty to minor charges such as jumping his bond, and he served six months in prison. Soon after he was released, he violated his parole and had to spend another 26 days in jail. So after All Good Things, the movie, it was a docudrama that starred Ryan Gosling, if you haven't seen it. Um, he was the character that was based on Durth's early life uh, when he was married to um, Catherine. It was, it, I don't think it was good or bad. It was just kind of a very run-of-the-mill type of movie. Um, after it was released, Durst uh, saw a private screening and told the New York Times that parts of the movie made him cry. Against the advice of his lawyer, he contacted the director of the movie and offered to do a sit-down interview, which eventually became a documentary called The Jinx. Durst is interviewed on camera for The Jinx and denies any culpability in the deaths of his wife and Susan Berman. Sometime after the first interview, the director discovers an envelope addressed to Berman from Durst, which matches the handwriting of the cadaver letter and includes the same misspelling of Beverly Hills. Now, the following year, a second interview is done with Durst, and he's confronted about the newfound envelope. Durst is unable to identify which handwriting is not his. In the bathroom afterward, Durst starts talking to himself. Here is the problem. Durst is not aware that his mic is hot, meaning his microphone is on. I saw this documentary and I was shocked. Like, honestly, I've watched a lot of true crime documentaries. I've listened to, I've listened to a handful of podcasts. I've read a lot of true crime books, a lot. I've read a lot of court transcripts. I've read a lot of studies on criminal behavior. But to watch this documentary, that last 10 minutes, 
I literally couldn't breathe. I had to go back and watch it again. I could not believe it because it absolutely goes against the idea that this man is brilliant and that's how he got away with his crimes. Like, you think the idea of posing as a mute woman, may, it's brilliant. People leave people with disabilities alone. They don't want to be uncomfortable. They don't know how to deal with them. Oh, you're mute? Okay. I, I mean, I don't know if you're mute. Are you deaf? Do I need to do sign? I'm just going to leave you alone because it makes me uncomfortable. You think that, that, that that's brilliant. He must be super smart to get away with all of this. And then while being interviewed for a documentary, meaning there are cameras everywhere, there are boom mics everywhere, you're mic'd up, even if you believe that your mic is off. There are mics and cameras everywhere. You go to the bathroom, look yourself in the mirror, and say, there it is. You're caught. What the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. I was shocked. My blood ran cold. Like I said, I had to go back and rewatch it a few times because I could not believe he said it. I thought it was possible. Maybe it had been manipulated. Like I could not believe it. So at that point is when he finally shares the documentary with the police. Now we're going into 2013. Robert Durst is arrested for violating a restraining order. His brother placed against him. Now, if you do watch the documentary, please know that the timeline has been rearranged. It's part of the reason that after I watched it, I had to go back and like, like it just messed with me because they do change the timeline. He's later acquitted of trespassing because the police did determine that he, there's no possible way he could know where his estranged family members live because he doesn't talk to them. The LAPD reopens the investigation into Susan Berman's murder. The filmmakers discovered the audio of the bathroom monologue, meaning they did not know it when they went to the police. Durst turns himself in in 2014, July 24, 2014. After he gets caught, well, almost gets caught, peeing on a candy rack in a Houston CVS. He pleads no contact, no contest to criminal mischief and receives a $500 fine. November of 2014, they re-examine the cadaver letter and the LAPD concludes Durst wrote it. March 2015, after the episode of the Jinx that has the envelope is aired, Durst goes on the run again. At the same time, a Los Angeles judge signs a warrant for his arrest in the murder of Susan Berman. The day before the finale, the FBI arrests Durst in New Orleans, where he is thought to be planning to escape to Cuba. We do not have an extradition treaty with Cuba, so he would not have seen justice. At the time of his arrest, Durst is in possession of a gun, $40,000 cash, and a latex mask. Remember, he still has $60 million in the bank. The LAPD denies that the show had anything to do with the timing of the arrest, while legal experts disagree over whether or not the bathroom confession can even be admissible in court at all. Next, Durst is officially charged. That's March 17, 2015, with the first-degree murder of Susan Bierman. 
because he's accused of murdering a witness and lying in wait, he faces the death penalty. Now remember, this man is in his 70s at this point, and he's facing the death penalty. Durst pleads not guilty to the murder of Susan Berman. After a series of delays brought on by his horrible health and Hurricane Harvey at this point, this is now 2018, a Superior Court judge orders Durst to stay in trial for Susan Berman's murder. April 2019, court documents filed by Durst's defense team revealed that the Kill Them All tape from the Jinx was significantly edited. Of course, the tape was significantly edited. That's what you do when you make a documentary, you edit it. Is the audio clip edited? That's not what they filed for, just that the tape itself was edited. In a pretrial court document, Durst's lawyers concede that yes, he did write the cadaver letter. Durst's trial for the Susan Bierman murder finally begins on March 2nd, 2020. Yeah, 2020, only two years ago. The trial is put on hold due to COVID-19. Before the interruption, the jurors had been presented with the full context of the quotes. The trial resumed May 17th, 2021. September 17th, 2021, Durst is convicted for the murder of Susan Berman. He's later sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And you have to figure that his age uh, played into it. You know, they figured he was not going to get out any, you know, he's probably going to pass away shortly and it would just be cruel to execute him. Durst is placed on a ventilator after contracting COVID-19 uh, approximately one month after being convicted. October 22nd, 2021, state police in New York charged Durst with the murder of his wife, Kathy. Like, I, I hate to say this, but it's kind of pointless. He's on a ventilator. Why are you charging him with murder? January 10th, 2022, Durst goes into cardiac arrest and dies. Now, this is where I feel that it is truly awful and horrible. There are several states in the United States, California, where Durst was convicted, but also in the state that I live in, in Massachusetts, where the courts of appeal can dismiss the um, appeal and order the trial court to set aside the entire conviction if the person dies before their appeal. Um, ever gets to court. And that is exactly what happened with Durst. He passed away before his appeal could be heard, could be heard. So the conviction was set aside. So even though the whole world knows he was found guilty, even though he, they know he was convicted, because he didn't get to finish his appeal, the legal record will show that his conviction was set aside. This also happened with Aaron Hernandez. For those of you who don't know who he is, he's an American football player who played for the New England Patriots who are located in Massachusetts. He committed several murders uh, for no reason other than I think maybe he thought he would get away with it because he's rich. And in jail, he committed suicide. His family, while he was waiting an appeal and his family moved to set aside the conviction because he had not completed his appeal. It was granted. And so even though he killed more than one person, um, the record <laughs> states that he has no record for murder. So 
this is something obviously that only people with money and means take advantage of because there are tons and tons of people who go to prison on a regular basis and die during the appeals process but do not have their conviction set aside um, it's horrible it's egregious it's an affront to the victims families you've you've taken their loved ones and and now because you died before the appeals process could be completed you get to have your name cleared after the fact um i think it's a horrible thing that needs to be just completely gotten rid of there's so many things broken about our system but i think that's the most horrific and just truly egregious so that is robert durst if you do get a chance, look for the jinx. Um, it's shocking. It's it's really, really disturbing. Uh, next week, we're going to go back to one of my favorite topics. That is nefarious doctors slash nurses. Is it criminal misconduct? Are they doing it on purpose? Is it weaponized incompetence? You know, I really love delving into that. Why go into the profession if your intent is to do harm? So in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.